Hi there, and welcome to Prevention Works, the podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. I'm Gretchen Miller, and on this episode, Dr Nick Watts, whose work right now is more relevant than ever. As I did my research, listeners, I found things he'd been saying over the past years in relation to his work on the Lancet Countdown that felt deeply prescient in this strange time of COVID-19. This conversation is one of the many we need to raise public consciousness. We are in a climate and a health emergency, and the Prevention Centre needs and wants to be at the forefront of evidence-based solutions around chronic disease and sustainable development. So let me introduce Dr Watts properly as he joins us on the line from the UK. He's been Executive Director of the Lancet Countdown since 2012, and he's just been appointed Chair of the Greening the National Health Service Advisory Board. He's a medical doctor from Western Australia with training in population health and public policy and has over a decade of experience in health and climate change. We're so grateful Nick can be with us. So let's get started. Nick, the Lancet Countdown, tell us a little about its history. What got it going? Yeah, sure. Our work really begins with a series of studies in the Lancet. It's one of the one of the world's most recognizable medical journals. And they said, I think, really very simple things, obviously underpinned by, by a mountain of evidence, but two simple things. One, on the one hand, climate change presents this enormous threat to public health, to global health, to the broader determinants of health, with the potential to undermine the last 50 years of gains that we as health professionals have made. And that's a huge problem. The other study came out in 2015 and was really the foundational sort of work for for the countdown. The response to climate change, if we do this right, the response to climate change could be the biggest global health opportunity of the 21st century. And that's because almost everything you want to do to respond to climate change, it has these profound benefits for public health. Whether we are talking about cleaner air, whether we are talking about healthier diets, safer cities, more livable cities. And so the Lancet Countdown, we do a really simple thing. Once a year, we put a finger on the pulse of the planet and we try to track um, countries, track populations moving from climate change as a threat to human health to the response to climate change as an opportunity for public health. Okay, so how does that manifest for you in terms (laughs) of, you know, making that comparison? With, with great difficulty. We, we're a collaboration of some 35 academic institutions, UN agencies. We're scattered across every continent. We include engineers, climatologists, hydrologists, environmental economists, transport, food, buildings experts, philosophers. Unfortunately, I and mean, I think I can say this because I'm, I'm medically trained, unfortunately, we also include doctors who are often the, often the hardest to, um, <laughs> to get along with here. But it takes the form of about 41 indicators. And so these 41 indicators, they come out every single year just before the UN Climate Summit towards the end of the year and track progress across every single country. And so we track anything from mortality from extremes of heat through to the deaths that we're seeing from air pollution, from coal-fired power, through to, and this is a new indicator for 2020, the mortality that we are seeing as a result of unhealthy diets, yes, but also unsustainable diets. Okay, this is really interesting. Are you seeing any of those indicators improving, dare I ask? You may not want to. Broadly, we know, and when we take a step back and look at the Lancet Countdown as a whole, 
what we can see is very clear. Climate change is affecting the health of populations, not in 2100, not in 2050, but today. It's affecting the health of populations today, everywhere, and no individual, no country is immune. Uh, it affects the United Kingdom uh, in varied ways, in different ways to how it might affect Australia, in different ways to how it might affect Peru or Brazil or a small island state. Each of us face different challenges depending on our geography and our population health profile, unique vulnerabilities. In terms of the response, broadly we have known this. Broadly we have known that climate change and health, they are uh, entwined for the last three decades. And at the very, very broadest level, we have done very little about that. We have held the carbon intensity of the global energy system flat. So we haven't improved it. We have more or less just kept it stable since 1990, which is for something that should be a low hanging fruit is quite disappointing. But there are some positive signs and it's really important that we remember these, that we repeat these, that we hold on to these. And I think the exciting thing for this podcast is that those positive signs are in the areas where the health profession has either already acted or where we have the most ability to take that sort of positive beginning and accelerate it. And so we see increases in adaptation capacity. We see increases in spending for health system adaptation. We see improvements in air pollution around the world. We know that just in a 12-month period, the European Union reduced air pollution to roughly a health bill of 5.2 billion euro every year, an annualized health bill of 5.2 billion euro. That's an enormous reduction from a very high baseline. And so it's a modest improvement, but I suppose it's also only over a 12-month time period. It's, it's roughly uh, just over 100 billion every year. You've just done a plenary session remotely at the Public Health Association of Australia's Preventive Health Conference. You were prevented from coming in person because of COVID-19 and the global travel restrictions. And when I was doing my background research, it felt really odd to be reading and listening to your words spoken prior to this incredible force, which has had such a powerful impact. So much of what you spoke about and wrote about was kind of prescient. And I have to ask you how researchers and NGOs and businesses and governments around the world and the milieu you're moving in are making the connections between this virus and climate issues. Let me take the broader question and then the specific question, perhaps in reversed order. Broadly, I think at the moment, it depends on the country you're in, but across the board, I don't think we're seeing quite the evidence we would like to see that governments, countries are coming together to make the links between climate change and human health. And yet there are exceptions. There are exceptions when you see the United Kingdom turn around and commit two billion pound to active transport infrastructure, because it knows in the same way as Milan knows and in the same way as Amsterdam knows, that as they rebuild their transport sector, as they restart the economy there, they don't want to do it in the same way. They want to invest in local communities. They want to invest in active transport and cycle lanes. And so those sorts of changes, I think, are positive. E equally, in England, we are seeing the NHS, the National Health Service, as it starts to think hard about what the longer term recovery from this pandemic looks like. It is doing so at the same time as trying to think about how it builds its existing commitments to climate change into that. Because it knows that if it's going to have a sustainable recovery, it has to be one that is green as well. And it also knows that it, it really isn't a good idea to combat one health crisis by exacerbating another health crisis. And so I think we do see some positive signs of governments making those connections. The one thing I would say, 
we had our high-level advisory board meeting for the Lancet Countdown late last night because we span too many time zones, Costa Rica, Kenya, New Zealand. We had quite a few names there, but a couple of people that I think we would agree know what they're talking about. Helen Clark, the former prime minister from, from New Zealand, Christiana Figueres, who championed and pushed through the Paris Agreement within the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and many others. The, the advice we had from this board, who was giving us some strategic input there, was, hey, this is going to be the defining challenge of the next decade. COVID-19 and the response is going to shape how the world thinks, looks, and feels over the next 10 years. And so we don't have a choice. No longer are the nationally determined contributions the biggest game in, in town. In fact, those COVID recovery packages are the biggest game in town. And if we want to have any chance at, uh, at making a dent over the next 10 years in this long-term crisis, we have to make sure that we marry up and synergize our response with the short-term crisis. So you've been involved in climate and public health for some time, working, for example, with WHO, with the NHS Sustainable Development Unit. You're the first author on all the Lancet Countdown Global Reports, and you set up and ran the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Did these past few months, with all your history and background, surprise you at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the past few months, I think, have surprised everyone. We've been expecting some nasty viruses for a while, haven't we? I should say, I mean, you go and speak to pandemic preparedness experts whose entire job is to do this, and you say, well, were you surprised? And they laugh, and they say, yeah, we were. It's one thing to be expecting, and it's another thing to be faced with the reality. We know, we know that there are strong and powerful links between climate change and a variety of infectious diseases. Vector-borne diseases like dengue fever and chikungunya, carried by Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus links between climate change and malaria carried by the Anopheles mosquito. Indeed, we, we're seeing emerging evidence linking Zika virus and, and climate change, although I, I have to stress that it's an emerging field because it's a very, very new virus. Anywhere that you know that a pathogen is interacting with a climate and that that climate used to be stable, we know that we will expect to see change as a result of climate change. It doesn't necessarily always mean more, but often more doesn't have to sort of be all you need to disrupt health systems health systems were built with the understanding that the climate was stable. We trained health professionals, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, public health professionals, with the understanding that the climate was stable. And when you yank that out from underneath them and you create some shifting sands, it's actually quite easy, as we've seen, to, to disrupt a health service. So what are the key illnesses we know as contributors to lifestyle-related chronic disease that are adversely affected by climate change? So for climate change and, and heart disease, we see that, and indeed kidney disease, we see that in the form of extremes of heat. We know that there are hundreds of millions of additional exposure events to vulnerable people from extremes of heat all around the world every single year. Who are those vulnerable people? Well, they are people over the age of 65. They are people living in highly urbanized conditions where they struggle to get out of the heat. But most importantly, they are people living with chronic disease. It's the exacerbations of heart failure. It is the acute kidney injury. Um, diabetes is a strong risk factor for the negative sequelae of heat waves. And so we see some powerful links there. And indeed, Europe is one of the most vulnerable parts of the world to these extremes of heat, in large part because it has an unhealthy population there. Those links, I think, are everywhere the whole way you look through. And how does that work? I mean, why would somebody who has diabetes or heart disease be affected? Yeah, we have a problem, I think, in public health communications where whenever there's a heat wave that comes along, the image you see on the news is of children playing in a fountain. 
along with some messages about how you must drink water and you must stay in the shade if you need to and probably shouldn't engage in too much physical activity for work. Heat waves are silent killers. We shouldn't be showing those sorts of pictures. In terms of heart disease, what we're really talking about is not one day or two days or three days. It's, it's sort of four or five days worth of heat waves that are two to three standard deviations above the norm, above what we might normally expect. And there you start to see that hearts have to pump faster. They pump faster. They pump harder. They get sort of pushed again and again. And over a longer period of time, they get overwhelmed. They get tired. And so you get this exacerbation of congestive heart failure. There's an underlying sort of illness and the environment pulls the trigger in this case, kind of the opposite to what we were taught in medical school. When it comes to kidney injury, it's really quite interesting. They discovered this in a couple of studies that just found these very strange spikes in AKIs and acute kidney injury across the United States, across South America. And everyone was wondering what was going on until they looked closer. And there's now quite a healthy body of evidence emerging here to see that actually it was outdoor agricultural workers and manufacturing workers who were becoming dehydrated because they were being forced to continue to work in order to maintain a livelihood in temperatures that were simply too hot, that were far too hot for them to be working in day after day. And it was resulting in this short-term and then eventually long-term kidney disease. Super interesting. And I'm thinking too now about mental health, which is also affected by climate change and how when we have extreme weather, when we have drought, heat waves, but also the bushfires we just experienced over the summer, long periods of time where you have to stay inside, where you can't get outside, you can't do the exercise, which boosts your mental health, but also boosts your physical health. What's happening with mental health and climate change? I'm so glad we get to talk about this because I I think the mental health impacts of climate change are among the most insidious and they are among the most concerning. We don't hear about them enough. We don't talk about them enough. We have enormous problems in mental health in general when you then add an overlay, sort of a complex changing uh, climate changing environment becomes kind of tricky. But we do have some good evidence. And in fact, this has been led by a number of experts in Australia talking to us about the impacts of a flood or the impact of an extreme event, not one day or two days or three days after the event has occurred, but three months or six months or coming back 12 months and saying, hey, how's your mental health doing? How are you feeling in yourself? You see spikes in anxiety related disorders. You see spikes in affective depressive disorders. Indeed, you actually also see spikes and it depends on the kind of flood and it depends on the kind of disruption, but you see spikes in, in thought disorders as well. So schizophrenia. Now, that connection there is most likely a disruption to health services kind of pathway that we're looking down. But those are really concerning. You touched on it, and I think it's important that we also highlight chronic disease is a major risk factor for mental health to the extent that something like a wildfire exacerbates COPD or exacerbates asthma to the extent that that heat waves do the same to the extent that some of the malnutrition we're seeing around the world has long-term lifestyle implications. In some ways, every single part of climate change and human health interacts with mental health, which is what makes it so important and also what makes it so difficult to to track and to cover. Incredibly difficult because if you don't have good mental health, it's extremely hard just to keep up with maintaining physical health, just in eating sensibly and getting out and exercising, you know, really simple factors like that. What I wanted to talk about next was the long term impacts of climate change on chronic disease at a population level. What are we looking at? You know, numbers of heat wave exposures, elderly people exposed, that kind of thing, crop growth even. Sure. So 
At present day, globally, we see somewhere between a 2 to 4% reduction in global yield potential for spring and winter wheat, for maize, for rice. That's for present day. Now, if we go forward to 2050, our projections from the London School suggest somewhere between 7 to 9 million additional kids under the age of five stunted as a result of malnutrition that has happened from climate change just in sub-Saharan Africa and just in Southeast Asia for each of those. That's a pretty enormous spike. We see sort of somewhere between an additional 100 to 200 million exposure events happening to vulnerable populations for for heat waves. So it varies depending on how hot the year is, but we, we are seeing a big increase compared to our climatologically stable baseline back in the 80s up to present day. Going forward, we're not talking in the hundreds of millions anymore. We start talking in the billions. We start talking about large, large parts of the population globally experiencing one, two, three heat waves sort of every single year. And again, they are not just children playing in a fountain. They are really quite quite concerning things. In 2003, there were over 70,000 excess deaths from a five-day period across Western Europe alone. Uh, five days. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And and those deaths, they lasted themselves out over about two weeks, but the heat wave itself that caused that, that was just there. That, that's an enormous spike if you consider even what the world is going through at the moment with COVID-19. So the health sector is really good at talking about the problems, and we've talked a lot about the problems and the issues there. What kind of conversations around solutions are happening, particularly whole-of-system solutions? What are the priorities there, and how can the health sector contribute to that? It's really important that we <laughs> keep laser-focused on the solutions. We, we know what the problem is. You can see the effects of climate change, the fingerprints of climate change on extreme weather all around the world. We have some really good detection and attribution studies to help us assign uh, probabilistic causality to, to these events now. We have to stay focused on the solutions. And I think there's a lot of good news there that we should really uh, hold on to. And a lot of good news if you are interested in preventative health, if you're interested in chronic disease. It turns out if you go and grab a hydrologist, a climatologist, an engineer, an economist, a transport expert, an energy expert, and you sit them all in a room and you say, hey, climate change is an enormous global health threat. Help us figure out how to respond to that. They will devise you a plan and they'll tell you you've got to keep global average temperature rise to somewhere between 1.5 to 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And they will tell you, you've got to try to do that at the global level by at least 2050. Anything later, it gets pretty dangerous. And you will sit down if you work in public health and you will look at that and you will say, well, that's not a climate intervention plan. That's a public health intervention plan. Because there you've told me I need to phase out coal rapidly and early. But I, as a public health professional, can tell you that that will save one, one million, just over one million lives every single year from reductions in air pollution. And those lives are people that otherwise would have been uh, dying from stroke, from heart attack, and yes, from lung cancer and chronic respiratory diseases. They will also tell you that if you are a child born in France, or if you're a child born in many, many countries across the world, you should no longer be living in a world where you would buy a fossil fuel car, where you buy a petrol or a diesel car, um, because they would be phased out, because we don't need cars anymore, because we have, A, designed better alternatives for mobility. We now have more place-based solutions for communities. But we also, where we do have cars, they're electric, they're clean, and so there's better physical activity that comes from that, and there's reduced air pollution. And then finally, they would tell you, hey, agriculture is a big problem in climate change. We have to do something to decrease our emissions. 
and you'd ask what, and they said, well, one of the big problems is an overconsumption in meat from ruminants, red meat. And another big problem is an overconsumption in processed meat, processed foods that comes from a long, long way away. And so the solution from a public health professional's perspective is a healthier diet. It's a reduction in red meat consumption. It is an increase in seasonable uh, vegetables and fruits. And it turns out that when you look at all of those different uh, things that a climatologist and an engineer and an economist might want you to do, they are just common sense, no regrets, public health interventions. So how important is whole of government? How important is that phrase in your toolkit of addressing the issues? Is there real consideration and action globally around the co-benefits of working with other sectors in transport, education, environment? How is that being sold by policymakers and practitioners who already know this? How is it being sold to governments? A whole of government response is essential for exactly the reason you outlined in your question there. It is only by linking up the department and your government responsible for climate change or the environment with the department responsible for health, with the department responsible for transport and energy and spatial infrastructure and buildings and agriculture. It is only by linking all of those sectors up that we are going to be able to secure those public health benefits. Is that happening, though, in any government around the world? <laughs> it really depends. Um my understanding is that it probably is happening in, in certain parts of Australia. I think South Australia for a very long time has been held up as doing quite an impressive job of, of responding to some of these issues and linking up some of those concepts. Equally, they were held up early on in the sort of health and all policies movement. And so it's no surprise there. In Western Australia, the Ministry of Health has just finished a climate change and health inquiry. If you read through some of the drafts there, one of the things that you will see is an understanding and embracing of the fact that multiple sectors are needed as part of the solution here. And health must be a central part of that. Indeed, it must lead some of that change, but it can't do that alone. I think we are seeing that, but I think also we are seeing the same problems that we see in chronic disease, that we see in poverty reduction and in, in broader issues, that siloed thinking remains an enormous problem that keeps getting in the way. But what's interesting, as you point out, health puts a human face on what can seem to be a distant threat to the wicked problem that is climate change. I wonder how you are using health to put a positive spin, because positivity is what we all crave as individuals and as governments and as policymakers, how challenging it is at times to approach all this with, with that positive spin and with a human focus on the wicked problem that is climate change. If you just talk about climate change, you risk talking about time periods around 2100. You risk talking about populations that are geographically a long, long way away from us. Uh, and you risk talking about something that I don't know if people really understand, something like parts per million of CO2 equivalents or something like a petajoule, which is you know an amount of energy so, so enormous that it's, it's sort of impossible to understand what, uh, what it even is. It is by bringing in exactly, as you say, that human face that we get to start to talk about the impacts of health, not in 2100, but in 2020, that we get to start to talking about those effects, not on a continent a long, long way away, important and essential, though, that uh, health there is as well, but uh, childhood asthma in a child in our community standing right next to us. And we get to talk about the positives. And those positives, I think, are, are really important. We know from public health behavioral science literature Fear motivates in the short term. If you really want to inspire someone to, to bring them with you in the long term, you have to have positive messaging. And we've just done some conjoint experiments in public opinion polling across the world trying to test this exact thing out. And I think the preliminary results we're just looking at back that up. 
people like the positive messaging because they like to believe that there's a future that we could all go to that you know we think will be a nice place to live. Mm. How do you propose the conversations be had in countries where governments struggle with the reality of climate change or just pay lip to it? Because the economic argument, the logical arguments, the health arguments seem to fall short. There is a great deal of ideology involved, we know that. How do you have that conversation when we know that logic and economics aren't cracking it? I think at the global level, yes, but also in a, in a few countries, the United States, Australia, one of the biggest mistakes we have ever made is allowing climate change to become politicised. It is not a political issue. There are legitimate discussions to be had about this pace of change required and about the costs and the ways to deliver that. But the existence of that science, that's not a political issue, although it has become one in a select number of countries. In part, I think that's because we've had the wrong message and the wrong messenger. I think we have allowed climate change to be seen as only an environmental issue, um, only an environmental issue a long way away, both in space and time. One of the things I think is going to be crucial going forward is trying to build in the understanding that climate change, yes, there's an environmental component there. But this is also about being able to do good business. As a friend of mine says, there is no business on a dead planet. It's also about bringing in faith communities. It's about bringing in local communities, sort of place-based solutions. It's about bringing in uh, people from a whole range of different parts of society, including the health profession. We have seen that the health profession, we often do a good job of depoliticizing something and of saying, hey, I'm here not because I care about one political party or the other. I'm here because I care about my patient's health. I care about public health. And I think when we start to break it down and understand it as something that affects local communities and health, we start to sort of wear away at some of those, quite honestly, unfounded questions. What are some of the practical solutions for health departments around the world that you're suggesting? Sure, sure. And it depends on the country you're in, right? The world's a big place and climate change is everywhere and carbon is everywhere as well. Number one, by far and away, the easiest first thing that every country must look at, phase out coal-fired power. It is an outdated, it is an old form of energy. Health departments have a really important role to play here in Canada, which is committed to phasing out its all of its coal-fired power, and in the United Kingdom, which will do the same in maybe one year, maybe two years from now. The departments for health, public health uh, bodies have been essential in making that case, in saying, hey, the reason we need to do this, yes, because of climate change, but also because of uh, human health, because of the air pollution cost. It's really notable that when the former president of the United States, when he announced the clean power plan, he didn't do so standing outside a wind farm and he didn't do so standing in the White House. He went to the asthma ward of a children's hospital and said, we need to phase out coal-fired power and these kids behind me demonstrate why we need to do that. And so that's the first really, really concrete thing. It kills over a million people every year. It's a big challenge for Australia. Australia is responsible for 7% of the world's emissions, largely because of its coal exports. It exports about a third of the world's coal. Another really concrete thing that we think health systems can do and can start to look at, hey, they've got to start to adapt and mitigate. We are powerful advocates for more rapidly progressing change, but there are also things we can do to clean up our own backyard. Around the world, the health system is responsible for an enormous amount of emissions, somewhere between 4 to 7%, depending on the country you're in. And there's a lot that the health system can do to reduce its emissions profile. Again, and this sounds like a lot of good news, but again, when you look at it, and when we take some examples from across North America, from across South America, and from the United Kingdom, 
we see that every time a hospital or a clinic has tried to reduce its emissions, it has done so by saving money, it has done so and improved patient outcomes, and it has done so by investing in public health. It turns out that a lot of this is saying, hey, do we really need that really intensive healthcare, or is there a better way to do this that is actually cheaper and better for patient outcomes? And it turns out that there's a whole range of things. In, in the United Kingdom, the NHS has managed to decrease its emissions by 18% since the Climate Change Act came into force about 10 years ago. That's a huge, huge reduction. But they did it while they were saving money and they did it while improving patient care. Nick, on this appropriately positive note, we should leave it there. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your generosity and your time and your work. This has been Prevention Works listeners. You'll find show notes on our website and your podcast provider. If you use Apple iTunes, go on, leave us a review. We will love you for it. Send us a message. We'd like to hear from you. I'm Gretchen Miller and I'll see you next time. <laughs>